Welcome to Bestec, public procurement podcast. Uh, today, we will be talking about free trade agreements and public procurement. And I'm joined by a colleague from University of Western Australia, uh, Dominic Dagabanya. Dagabanya. Uh, um, so give us a listen. Welcome to Bestec, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Antoff discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestec. Let's dish up public procurement law. Hello, Dominic. Uh, welcome. It's so nice for you to join me. It's a little bit different setup. Usually I have my co-host, um, Willem. Uh, so I'm doing this for the first time on my own. And what a pleasure to to be joined uh, by you. Dominic, can you give us a couple words of introduction of what you do in your professional life as an academic and why, you know, the sort of crossover of interest, of course, within our uh, Bestec uh, podcast on public procurement? All right. Thank you, Marta, for the opportunity to engage in this uh, conversation uh, with you. I'm happy to do so because I have been researching and thinking around the topic of the conversation. So it's good to have uh, this kind of conversation where I can have a general sharing of my ideas on the, the subject of the podcast. So, and uh, as Marta mentioned, my name is uh, Dr. Dominic Dabanja, and I'm from Ghana, and I have been teaching here at the University of Western Australian Law School since uh, 2016. Uh, my research principally focuses on um, the intersection of um, international economic treaties. And by international economic treaties, I'm talking about bilateral investment treaties, free trade agreements, and uh, public law and policy. Uh, in particular, I, I seek in my research to theorize on the subject of the limitations that national constitutions place on the capacity of states to conclude these trade agreements, these investment treaties which often tend to limit the capacity of states to adopt policies uh, in the public interest, in the national uh, interest. I also research on the subject of uh, public procurement um, mm -hmm. law, having completed my master's at George Washington University in 2008. And so in light of uh, my research on these areas, trade investment law, bilateral investment treaties, free trade agreements, public procurement law, and so forth. What I seek to do essentially also is to look at the intersection between public procurement law and policy and, and free trade uh, agreements and bilateral investment treaties as well, which is the subject of this conversation. So I'm happy to be able to have conversation with you today on, on this subject. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dominic. So yes, our main, as the listeners can already hear, we'll be talking about um, free trade agreements and we will dive a little bit um, into it. Today's style of the podcast will be a little bit more interview-like as I have this great opportunity to talk to Dominic. Um, 
and we will dive to a couple of elements along the way. Um, and then we will move on, of course, to our dessert later on. Um, before we started to record, Dominic, I mentioned to you what is a little bit set up of this with this mains and desserts. Mm. So one of the things that we uh, always try to engage with is think, okay, if if I'm coming to your place for a dinner or if I'm visiting um, let's say the event, the conference that you're organizing, what is the type of dinner that you think is representable mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. you know, your home, your culture, yeah. what you seek out, what, how you host your ghost, mm-hmm. guests? Yeah. What would that be, you yeah. think? Uh, well, if I were speaking from um, an African context, you can imagine a dish of, uh, uh, you know, prepared with uh, corn flour, with okra soup mm-hmm. and mixed together. And so that takes us to the conversation around different things being put together and creating a very lavish, uh, stylish dish that you cannot actually resist. <laughs> so in that sense, looking at the intersection of um, free trade agreements, um, the intersection of bilateral investment treaties and public procurement law, uh, and policy. So that would be the, the, the substantive kind, yeah. of, kind of meal that I will prepare <laughs> for you, <laughs> for you to enjoy. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. So I would want us then to start a little bit on this main, um, as we discussed from a little bit different angle, because as you said yourself, uh, you also published um, in public procurement, you have your book on public procurement in mm-hmm. Ghana. If we have a practitioner, so if you've got, you know, public servants, if the they are, you know, placed in the African continent or in Australia or anywhere in the world that our listener can be, what would be your answer to the question, how is conversation about free trade agreements relevant to me as a practitioner? Is there sort of link between them or it kind of more happens in steps that actually in your day-to-day life as a practitioner, you're not affected by it, but... You know, it, it's sort of somewhere in the background. Mm. Um, so in other words, if I were to play devil's advocate, if we have practitioners listen to you and they would say, well, this sounds quite theoretical. Is that for me? What would be your answer? I, I would say that there's a very practical relevance of in, the intersection between um, public procurement law and policy and free trade agreements. Um, in the sense that public procurement is about goods and services generally, um, not even generally specifically, but also um, free trade agreements are about trade in services, trade in goods as well. So generally the subject matters um, relate, but also increasingly, um, you know, free trade agreements now include provision dealing with the subject of public procurement here and there, either excluding or providing for mechanisms where um you know, the procurement market has to be opened. So in that sense, I think the subject of the intersection of public procurement um, law and policy and free trade agreements um, is is a very practical one, not just a a theoretical one. Mm -hmm. Could you give us an example, uh, really, if I'm someone who hears for the first time of uh, free trade agreements, can you give me an example of what they are, what they can cover, how I can as a citizen, you know, enjoy the kind of benefits achieved through free trading agreement? 
by their name, literally, free trade agreements. Uh, although you might question how free, what is it that they offer free? Mm-hmm. But essentially, the role of free trade agreement is to uh, remove barriers for uh, international trade to ensure that the countries that are parties to those agreements, um, the, the, the citizens, businesses uh, from those countries are able to move across uh, member countries to those free trade agreements so that you can trade in goods and services and move across without limitations. Now, in the absence of those free trade agreements, um, the movement of goods across uh, countries will essentially be subject to the regulation of domestic law. And domestic law essentially operates in the national interest. Mm. And so there could be limitations in terms of access to the market if trade were to be regulated solely uh, it, through domestic um, uh, domestic law. So free trade agreements mo- remove those barriers. They ensure that there's equality of treatment. They seek to ensure that there's no discrimination. Market access is there and so forth. You touched upon a very interesting, I think, element and an and element that um, it's being right now discussed more and more Um in context of, you know, sustainability very much as an SDGs or ESGs or whichever of those we discuss um, versus the local preference. Because undoubtedly, as, as you, as you uh, so poignantly mentioned, the free trade agreements are to get rid of this local preferences, this national preferences to open up the competition. And, um, since the in the, the wave of increase of focal points on sustainability considerations have uh, gained more and more prominence on the area um, of you know discussing regulating public procurement, uh, sometimes we hear voices that you know some of those elements are actually against you know like let's say um, that having a sustainable consideration in your public procurement can be just a smokescreen for preferential treatment. And here a good example is. Whenever we start to discuss um, climate um, reduction of uh, climate risk and climate change, mm-hmm. uh, the, the the example here uh, could be use of you know climate mileage. So obviously something that will be more local to at least from a perspective strictly of let's say services and transport, uh, it would be preferential um, on sustainability basis to award contract to local contractor mm-hmm. for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, which would be uh, seen against the free trade um, agreements. Um, And I was wondering, you existing and having so much experience in that sphere, and also, as you mentioned, we see more and more procurement being regulated in free trade agreements, but also sustainability is being used really as an argument in free trade agreements. European Union has been right now um, quite prominently trying to be, you know, the the first mover of really uh, trying to incorporate a role of sustainability consideration, sustainable public procurement elements in the um, trade agreements, free trade agreements that they're becoming part two. I wanted to ask you for your opinion, how you think that that works? What from a perspective of someone that so passionately also is invested in the free trade agreement research, how we can balance those two, where we are going too far uh, or maybe are those elements that actually do not belong in free trade agreements on public procurement? What's your opinion here? Yeah, thank you. That's an important question to to address. Um, I will say that it depends on the 
whether the, the state is using, let's say, um, you know, the, the local preference or uh, a sustainable development measure as an excuse to exclude foreign uh, participation. Now, if the state is imposing measures relating to sustainability, and which will apply across uh, participants in the procurement market, it is less likely that there will be an issue with uh, the free trade agreement. However, if it is a cover-up, more or less, to limit foreign participation, then the state could have issues in terms of compliance with uh, is free uh, the, the state's free trade agreement obligations. Now, but in the situations where local preference seeks to limit participation essentially to domestic uh, investors, or that to use um, local preference to promote a certain domestic objective, like for example, if you look at um, the Public Procurement Act of Ghana. It talks about uh, using procurement um, to promote the development of a competitive local industry, especially Mm -hmm. with a focus on um, the domestic industry. Now, this is a domestic legislation, but um, Ghana too has also signed on to bilateral investment treaties, which deals with the subject of national treatment and all of that. So in that case, Ghana's obligations relating to opening up uh, the market for the participation of foreign investors could, under bilateral investment treaties could class with a provision in the domestic legislation uh, dealing with uh, local preference. South Africa deals with the sub- also has even constitutional pr- provisions dealing with the subject of local preferences, um, you know, to address issues of um, inequality and discrimination arising from apartheid and so forth. Mm. Now, there's a big changes right now, right? This sort of uh, talking about South Africa, I understand yeah. that there have been all this discussion of raising whether that is constitutional and so on. there is a big reform going. Is that true? Is that correct? I think that the ongoing yeah. legislation yeah. Is, a, is an area that is developing and mm. respond to challenges and all of that. Yeah. And even recently, well, I don't know how recent it is, but since 2015, South Africa came out with a new leg- legislation specifically focusing on uh, investment. And, and, and that was essentially because of the fact that um, foreign investors were using bilateral investment treaty to challenge uh, domestic policies relating mm. to local preferences. Uh, and and so forth. And so going back to the subject of sustainability, I have looked at, for example, the comprehensive agreement on investment between the EU and and China Mm -hmm. uh, that deals with the subject of uh, sustainable investment with provisions dealing with um, the environment, provisions dealing with corporate social responsibility uh, and so forth. Now, the idea is that investment must be undertaken in a manner that, you know, does not compromise uh, environmental quality. That ensures that the human rights of the people of the whole state are respected and so forth. The labor rights of the people, the workers for the foreign businesses are respected and so forth. The major issue that I have with, see, the provisions in the uh, Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, the CAI, between China and EU, which I think is here to come in force. I haven't looked at the latest data on 
that come into force of that agreement. But the major issue, and I published a paper in the Journal of Well Investment and Trade on, on this uh, subject. The major issue that I have with the sustainable development uh, provisions um, in, in, in that agreement is that they tend to be um, soft law in nature mm. to the extent that they say, for example, the whole state must encourage um, investors to adopt, um, corporate, uh, comply with their corporate social uh, responsibility guidelines and so forth. So they are not strong enough to ensure that the ideals and objectives underlying them can really be uh, achieved at the end of the day. Mm. That is a major issue. And I think that you you um, definitely hitting the nail here um, because I think that that has been across a lot of this um, different agreements right now and issues that have been raised that those are some type of values, uh, objectives, principles, some sort of in some sort of way weaved into those agreements, but there is quite weak enforcement mechanism. And if you have quite weak enforcement mechanism, it becomes something that it would be nice to have. But if we have breaches, they are not really followed up. They are not really um, challenged. But we see some interesting um, developments that area. We talked about some weeks before we agreed on the date for the recording, also about this Canadian court case, mm-hmm. um, tells these versus Ontario Ministry of Transportation from 2022, where that, up there we have this interesting situation in which there was a successful challenge of local preference. But the local preference also in that case have been um, interesting because it was used as a means of uh, type of national security issue. But what the... Um, disregarded bitter, the one who did not win the award, ultimately challenged it. It challenged that specific requirement of local um, criteria. And I think we were producing their passports and there was something about that the cards needed to be mm. produced uh, in the borders of Canada, yeah. right? Yes, yes. Yeah. And um, the argument up there that were used, which I think is very interesting, was used, sorry, was, that was very interesting, was actually reference to international mm-hmm. trading agreement, yes, right? Yes. Um, did you have a chance to to look at that? I would be very curious to hear what you thought about that case. Yeah, thank you. I had a read of that case and I was wondering um, whether or not if, um, you know, a trader can, a foreign trader can seek the protection of um, the protection of a free trade agreement in the domestic law, mm. whether we need an international mechanism. But at the end of the day, I think the the the, the decision didn't go into the substance of um, the application of the uh, comprehensive economic uh, and trade agreement between Canada and 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 the EU. Mm-hmm. The, the the decision didn't go into the substance no. of the case. And in fact, one of the judges said that. Um, he didn't intend to say that um, Canada could not adopt discriminatory measures under CETA mm-hmm. as such. Mm. Um, so it didn't go into the substance of the application of the that ag- you know agreement between the EU and 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 Canada. But the case essentially illustrates the point that in this case, uh, Ontario sought to uh, impose require that. Um, the procurement of um, 
stock cards. It was like identity cards and a variety yeah. of other cards that it, be, it should be done in, in Canada. But, you know, the foreign participant in this case who, who challenged, brought the case, was essentially saying that that was discriminatory, contrary to um, the comprehensive economic uh, agreement between uh, Canada and, and, and the EU. And, and the state sought to justify on the basis that there was a public uh, interest, public safety issue. Ultimately, the court found that um, that was not the case. Uh, it was unreasonable and all of that and quashed uh, the decision. But the case illustrates the point. Um, I'm not sure whether we can strictly see this was um, a domestic preference as such, mm. other than the, um, the idea that the goods that we need need to be produced domestically. Mm. And and the foreign participants seeing that as limiting their opportunity because they were based outside of Canada. Yeah. So if you impose limitations on producing them outside of uh, Canada, you are essentially limiting the participation of the foreign um, uh, trader. But it illustrates the point that um, these free trade agreement can actually limit what states want to do domestically, which if they were not parties to these agreements, they could actually uh, do. So the substantive decision on the conflict between um, that imposition and um, under the CETA is yet to be to be tested in maybe in an international uh, forum. But it is an interesting case of the intersection of free trade agreements yeah. and, and public procurement law and policy. Undoubtedly. And that brings me to my next question, which is, um, you know, over the decades, we really could have seen that public procurement often ha been left out out of the free trade agreements. Um, and I wonder why you think that was the case and why that particularly changed, why we see more and more the newer um, agreements really have the chapter on public procurement. And the reason why I asked that, because I also would want to hear your perspective, because you you wear those two hats of of having um, the experience and the knowledge in both of the fields that we discuss in public procurement and free trade agreements. Um, because I think that public procurement is also a little bit specific, right? Particularly if we're discussing this local preference, all this element, I think that undoubtedly there always will be this part about public procurement that we're spending public money through the fact that we're spending public money. I think that there is, on, from citizens' perspective, there is an expectation that those money are used to uplift also local economies. And obviously that's argument, this more public administrative element of public procurement stands at uh, at this crossroad or actually is, I would rather say, it's it's opposed, is in conflict with this notion of really commercial approach to public procurement mm. and focus on open competition and the free trade, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, so why do you think we, we we went towards the path of of more looping in the public procurement in free trade agreements and how you assess that development? Mm -hmm. I think the major issue here is um, the idea that once you undertake an international commitment, it becomes necessary to ensure that your domestic policies, your domestic laws are in conformity with um, you know, your international obligations. 
And with, for example, the agreement on government procurement by the, w, the World Trade Organization, and countries that are parties to that agreement can no longer seek to limit the participation of um, the participation in procurement uh, domestically. So, for example, you will see that Australia ensures that um, its public procurement framework uh, is designed in a manner that accommodates its international obligations and the free trade agreements and so forth. So, one states when not necessarily signing on to these agreements, or when these agreements were essentially, let's say, bilateral in nature, it was easy to exclude, um, you know, public procurement in free trade agreements and, and so forth. Um, but with the need to open up, and, you know, public procurement is about goods, it's about services, generally. And so there is a need now having to include them because if you sign on to a free trade agreement, then you cannot maintain a, you know, a, a public procurement regime that excludes uh, foreign participants in the supply of goods and services that are needed in, in the country. So I think that the signing on to these international obligations is what is pushing states now um, to see that there is a need for them to have um, it, it, a free trade agreement regime uh, that respects uh, the open, the real opening of the market for participation by uh, those interested to um, to, to do so. Um, thank you for that. I think that um, my three cents, so to speak, to to that would also be that, and and I wonder what, whether you would agree with me or maybe you have a different perspective is that why principally, fundamentally, I 100% agree what you just mentioned. But I think in practice, looking how the international trading agreements in context of public procurement works, particularly if you look how U.S. Um, collaborates and how the how how um, this uh, trading agreements work between U.S. and EU, but also right now being here in Australia, I looked into obviously some of the procurement practices here, um, and also Australia, I think, is quite interesting um, because it's a relatively new member to mm-hmm. the governmental procurement agreement. Mm-hmm. It seems th- at the same time that though in practice, when you kind of on the ground, you see a lot of procurement, if those are sectors or, you know, depending who conducts the procurement, if it's central government, if it's more local, there's a lot of exclusions mm-hmm. that the free trading agreement doesn't cover. And then even if they cover, we're going back to the point on sustainability, which is the recourse mechanism is somehow I find weaker. And what I mean by that, I don't think that there is a problem in all of different um, jurisdictions that we're discussing. You have a possibility if you have not won the procurement process or you think that have been um, some issues along the way, you can challenge the process. But I I wonder, what is my recourse as a tender, as a bidder, if I believe that the way how procurement is operated, let's say, in my state right now, being in in, in uh, Australia, um, thinking that, you know, we're not really, the system is really ultimately not built in the way that is compliant with the um, existing free trade agreement. Of course, here the question is, you know, whether that would be really my interest to raise that. But yeah. if we just theorize for a second, 
from where the nudge comes to change something, because this is in between the states. So I guess the other state, if we take the bilateral agreement, other state would need to raise that as a question. I imagine as you as an individual company or citizen, you don't really have a standing here to impact any changes. Is is, is that correct assumption? Yes. Um, normally, public procurement disputes, public domestic procurement legislation will usually provide for the mechanism for resolving procurement disputes. Mm. And those mechanisms are usually domestic in nature. It could be a special body designed to resolve um, the, the dispute. It could be the regulatory body. And then from there, you can appeal to the court and go through the process and all of that. So the mechanism for the most part is very uh, local in nature. However, where a state is a party to, say, um, a free trade agreement, usually um, it is not unusual that maybe the state will require domestic exhausting of local remedies. But usually the free trade agreement will also provide for, especially in the investment chapters, will usually provide for a mechanism for an external settlement of the dispute in the form of uh, about, in the form of um, international arbitration uh, and so forth. So yes, um, there could be a challenge for the foreign investor where uh, strong provisions are not made for international uh, jurisdiction over procurement dispute, in which case um, the foreign the, the trader or foreign investor will have to go to the domestic uh, forum for the resolution of the, the dispute. But again, this is a contentious area because, look, you can say that procurement is about the national interest and that if you have participation, if a foreign trader, investor is participating in the procurement system um, and the system works for you and you take the benefit of the system, you shouldn't say that because there is a dispute, you can no longer trust the domestic mm-hmm. dispute resolution mechanism, you know, just because you are foreign or something of that nature. Of course, the traditional argument is that the foreign investor or the trader, the foreign trader, the foreign business entity uh, could be discriminated, there could be local bias, there could be inefficiency in the domestic dispute resolution mechanisms and all of that. But, um, but if the regulatory system works for you, Mm. The dispute settlement mechanism should also work for you. Yeah. But the point is that increasingly states have um, these um, international uh, arbitration as a mechanism uh, for resolving some of these uh, disputes. It, you know, the, the the reason why I'm raising that as a question, because I think, you know, coming from um, really being embedded in the European Union uh, procurement setup, um, the local or, or local preference is is you know it's sort of like it, it, if you if you ever read uh, Harry Potter to your kids it's like a Voldemort right you don't say that it's absolutely something that is the highest ground of breach of procurement rules yeah. and and I think the European countries have been very careful about trying um, not to well trying to really not use that. Because it would be a, the endowed element of a legal challenge, and we had several cases on that. Yeah. But if you go and, and from that reason, I just started to obviously look a little bit outside of here. And if you look at the American system, if you look also into Australian system, and we had over the time that I've been here a uh, couple chats about it. 
you're very often in all these different other jurisdictions um, than the regional EU. You see the local preference being quite, you know, strong and well. You have, if that started uh, with Trump and being reassured by Biden administration, the buy American and, you know, manufactured in American. Um, Every state in Australia has local preference. Having in mind that all those countries are part of the GPA. What is your take on it? Do you think that this is that this happens because probably those preferential um, kind of requirements are used in very specific type of procurements that are excluded mm. from the coverage of GPA? Mm. Or is it a type of situation that kind of somehow, you know, we don't have someone watching carefully enough? Because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite fascinated by that because it seems sometimes it feels like we're the only ones, the Europeans, that don't play the game, so to speak. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think that is also a very important question to address. And I think part of the challenge is that maybe the design of these free trade agreements um, is not realistic to what happens in practice. The procurement is essentially about the national interest, that the government needs certain goods and services to serve its citizens, and that the government should have the flexibility in the implementation of uh, its domestic policies, where, for example, maybe the government is not a party to the government procurement agreement or other international procurement treaty. So I think that in designing these international agreements on free trade, on um, on public procurement like the, the GPA, um, I think that um, there's probably lack of reflection on whether or not realistically there will be compliance with these international agreements because states will often <laughs> or always want to have some preference in making these decisions and in implementing their procurement measures and and so forth. And so, as I mentioned, the South African constitution says there has to be local preference. Now, if South Africa goes to sign, say, the the GPA or some other free trade agreement, that says that you cannot have that. You are going to have a clash. Mm. So, so, So that is the problem and that the lack of... Um, appreciation of the fact that states will often have some domestic interest to pursue and that these agreements need to accommodate those realities as much as uh, as much as possible if you don't do that you always have the clash between um, the free trade agreement to open up procurement measures and um, and uh, the, the desire of states to have preferences mm. uh, in public procurement wonderful Thank you so much for that, Dominic. Um, I think that with that, we can conclude the main uh, aspect of our today discussion on the free trade agreements and public procurement. I will, of course, in the description on our website of the podcast, we're going to also include a reference to Dominic's publication lists where we very uh, much Um, encourage all of our listeners to give it uh, a go and investigate a little bit more aspects of uh, free trade agreements and investment law and that crossover with public procurement. Um, Dessert is a little bit lighter part of our conversation on the podcast. And we usually try to touch upon 
something that is a more cross uh, cross disciplinary um, element, a little bit more personal element. If it's from academic life more broadly, or having in mind uh, that we have a guest today, um, also ask about your experiences. And I think Dominic, what I would want to ask you is, we have a lot of young professionals, young PhDs, and by young, I mean, you know, in their career path yeah. rather than age necessarily, um, that might share uh, with you or with me, because I think in, in, in that way, we, there is certain similarity between us that our career took us through different countries. Uh, we had a lot of homes along the way. Um, and I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that um, with us. What are some of the particularly rewarding and particularly challenging aspects mm. of over the course of years of your career, changing homes, changing countries, changing continents, mm. how it is to exist as an academic mm. in that in that life? And what would be maybe some points, you know, of advice to younger self if you were to do it all over again? What do you think? <laughs> all right. Thank you. Um, it's good to share with um um, you know, colleagues, the young ones there who might be, you know, listening and interested in, in this subject. Um, well, as, as, as you said, I've traveled around a bit. I come from a very small, humble community in the northern region of Ghana. And then education took me to Accra, which is the capital of Ghana. And I, I worked and practiced law there briefly. And then I had the opportunity to go and do my master's at the University of the Pacific in California. And then I finished my master's there. And then I went to um, Washington, D.C., the George Washington University to do my master's in government procurement law. And then I went back home. And then I said I wanted to do a PhD. I don't know why I was just getting this certificate, but but then I went and I did my PhD at the University of Auckland. Um, it took me four full years of full-time research uh, to get my, my PhD done. And just around the time that I finished my, my PhD, I had an opportunity to do my postdoctorate at um, the University of Manchester in the UK. And then um, I got a teaching appointment, teaching research appointment here at uh, the University of Western Australian Law School, and I have been here since 2016. So I think that I've gone around the world a little <laughs> bit, coming from my very small village in the northern region of, of Ghana. And it means a lot to travel around because um, I know what it means to come from where I come from and to have the opportunity that is global in nature and, and, and traveling and working in these uh, developed parts of the world. I think you are, when you have opportunities of this nature, you are able to connect with the global community in your area of interest much more easily than you will do operating, say, um, in a local context. So I think the benefits of this opportunity has been able, has been being able to connect with people across the globe. For example, having the opportunity to have this conversation with you today, yeah. Marta, you probably would not know me if I were in my village somewhere yeah, <laughs> uh, sure. doing some farming, unless, of course, I became a very big farmer. Yeah, you and never know. I'm, and I'm supplying the whole world with, uh, <laughs> you know, yams or um, other uh, local uh, farm produce. 
So, um, so you are able to build a profile uh, that matters in, 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 in academia easily, I think. You are able to publish um, you know, in forums that probably you will not easily be able to do if you localized and so forth. And publication in certain um, you know, places means that you are expanding your network of uh, connection with professional colleagues uh, and all of that. So, so I think that um, it's been a great opportunity because I feel that I've built a profile that uh, I could not easily do um, if I didn't have the opportunities that um, I have. And I believe that the opportunity for me to grow uh, beyond my current uh, you know, level will be much more easy because I have had these opportunities. So I think that is good for, um, for uh, young people aspiring and seeking to build their profile that if ever they have those opportunities, they should, they should embrace them and, and utilize them and commit themselves to those opportunities. And I believe the future will take care of the rest in terms of where all of that will lead you uh, to. So as far as I am concerned, I have not had any regrets in taking up these opportunities of schooling uh, across uh, the world, of working across the, the world and being here and so forth. But I'm also passionate and aware that I am from Ghana mm -hmm. and that I have a role to play in the development of Ghana, I have a role to play in the development of the African continent because we have to make the African continent what we want it uh, to be. And so I am still connected back home, mm -hmm. uh, the original home. Yeah. Once original, always original. Yeah, I'm still I connected to the original home. Um, and, and, and even recently, I, have, I was having conversation with the University of Ghana about teaching a number of units uh, there and so forth. So I think that um, embracing these opportunities can help you build uh, resilience, get to know other people, get to know other cultures. And I think that you become much more conscious about other people, other cultures, other ways of doing things when you embrace these opportunities. The challenge has always been um, uh, dependent on when you take up these opportunities. Um, um, you always feel that you have an original home that that calls you mm. and um and sometimes um you feel that um you are not making the sort of contribution that you should be making back home the Give, guilt you know the, the guilt, guilt and and all of that <laughs> you know and also if you come from a place that is warm and not maybe on a lighter note uh, you don't need to have uh, you know manos yeah. Or, or the, in terms of the weather I'm talking about now, if you don't like the cold, yeah. and if you don't like wearing so many things to keep yourself warm, uh, you know, you want to stay in your corner mm -hmm. there. But uh, the point I'm making is that you've got to, there's a price, there's a price mm -hmm. to every dream. Oh, and, 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 and then you must, and the price that I have to pay may not be exactly your price, but be aware there is a price to pay mm. and embrace that price along with all the, the glorious opportunities that come with taking up these opportunities. And I'm sure um, you will be an excited person. I hope I'm sharing what might be useful uh, to, to friends uh, outside there. Uh, absolutely. And I, I also really enjoy, you know, having this type of conversation because as you say, even that we connect here in Australia, coming mm. from... Mm. 
totally two different kind of worlds and then a couple countries in between us along the way. But the experience is shared because I think that I very much would uh, echo what you what you mentioned, which is great opportunities, Mm -hmm. fantastic adventures Mm -hmm. in 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 life, professional life and personal life. But I I really like this this balance that you added um, because I sometimes feel um, that we academically, you know, this international academic life sometimes can seem from outside a bit through pink glass Mm. and there is a price to pay. There is a price to pay. A lot of it is undoubtedly also through your personal life because, Mm. you know, all your... um, kind of safety network or mm-hmm. your family mm-hmm. so your friends all these people that you can mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. rely on and tough situations in life may not be mm-hmm. around you yes. you need to build those new like th- yes. there is a price to pay mm-hmm. and i think that um that is important to underline mm-hmm. and i also really like what you mentioned that the price might be quite different depending mm-hmm. where you are mm-hmm. in life mm-hmm. what is your story mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that showcase a really, you know, wholesome, full picture of what it means also for us as very mobile people that yeah, that yeah. that make our homes all around the world. Yes, thank you. I think you made an important point about that, that you know, the friendships, the cultural connection. And so that is that has been one of the, the, the major challenges coming from an African background. Uh, you don't need to negotiate friendship. Mm. You have neighbor... Neighbor has you as neighbor. Um, you can easily walk into somebody's house. Somebody can easily walk into your house. Um, it's very spontaneous. It's, it, it, it happened. It's yeah. natural. Um, so from a cultural, social perspective, uh, maybe a major challenge has been being able to connect. Mm. Okay. Socially. Yeah. Professionally, you have a fantastic working environment. Uh, you know, there's no doubt about that. I think you would like your working environment. But socially, uh, depending on where you come from, yeah. if you come from a similar cultural background, mm. it is so. But yeah. if you come from, say, an African cultural background where, you know, um, you know that connection really matters, yeah. then you, you've got some adjustments to make oh, for quite some time to come, uh, you know, but as I says, that is the price you have to pay for the opportunities that you have uh, taken up. For sure. And I think that, you know, into that last point that you made, I think it's the, the, the interesting element is that out of this transition, this adjustment, there will yeah. be uh, tough moments maybe of loneliness Absolutely. or sort of not feeling not belonging. But then also yes. there will be some like really funny ones if yes. you look from perspective of exactly. time. Yes. Did you kind of assume one thing because culturally that's what you kind of remember from the, even not, you know, your original home, yeah. but let's say yeah. the last place that you lived yeah. for five, six years, yeah. which doesn't work in the new place that yeah. way. And yeah. sometimes also funny things happen. So um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a very colorful, interesting ride that that life of ours. Um, and thank you so much, Dominic, for joining me today. It was absolute pleasure uh, to hear more about the substance of your research work and also for you sharing some of your thoughts and experiences with us. Um, to make a very brief summary, what we covered today as our main subject were free trade agreements and the interconnectivity and crossover with public procurement. We spend a bit of time of uh, discussing how preferential treatment, uh, treatments, local preferences 
how those are treated, where they are intentions, and what might be the logics behind why they coexist with the free trade agreements. And for our dessert, we were diving a little bit into Dominic's very rich um, professional experience across several continents, several universities, and um, bringing us both here to the University of Western Australia on this beautiful July day. So I will conclude with that. This was the Step in Public Procurement podcast. This was Bestec, the public procurement podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestecpodcast.com. 